Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, Food Junkies podcast listeners. Don't forget, there's still time to help us get to 100,000 downloads by January 1st as a big thank you to Dr. Vera Tarman. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, and leave us some feedback so others can find us more easily. Today, Clarissa and myself meet up with Dr. Andrea Grayson. You may have seen her on the Quit Sugar Summit earlier this year or the Kick Sugar Summit more recently. Dr. Andrea Grayson is accomplished in numerous fields, including video production, marketing strategy, program development, and community engagement, and also conducts primary research and program evaluations. A lifelong pursuer of health, wellness, and spirituality, she now has two primary areas of focus, empowering and inspiring healthy lifestyle changes through writing, talks, workshops, and online courses, and pursuing policy solutions to create greater health equity. Drawing on several methodologies and employing a mix of media outlets, Dr. Grayson designs campaigns to address a variety of health and social issues in targeted populations. Her media work with behavior change methodology includes work with the Vermont Department of Health's WIC program, numerous colleges in Vermont to address excessive alcohol consumption, and collaborating with the broadcast producers in Africa to create pro-social health messaging to address the HIV-AIDS epidemic. Dr. Grayson has an appointment as an assistant professor in the Larner College of Medicine at the University of Vermont, teaching in the Master of Public Health program. More specifically, Dr. Grayson has been teaching college-level courses in social marketing, media studies, and media production since 1994. Recent courses include the Social and Behavioral Foundations of Public Health, Communication for Social Good, Media Production for Social Change, and Marketing Social Change. Several courses involve opportunities for academic service learning, where students apply their learning to address social issues in their community. Dr. Grayson has a background in news, education, and advertising, corporate media production, and is the co-founder of a production company, It's a Fine Mess Productions. Her video productions have received national attention, including a 2015 Silver Award from the Academy of Interactive and Visual Arts. Through presentations, workshops, and courses, Dr. Grayson provides information and inspiration for people to advance their health and fitness. Her current startup is Breaking Free from Sugar, a one-month journey to reclaim your health for good. Clarissa and I wanted to know Andrea's personal and professional stories and how they merged, the five pathways of sugar dependency, who her program is a good fit for, the nine areas of health she assesses for and works with clients to improve, behavior change and why it can be difficult, We talk a bit about public policy and the actions we can take and stick around to find out how Andrea answers our signature question. Welcome, Dr. Grayson. Welcome to this episode of the Food Junkies podcast. Today, we have Dr. Andrea Grayson, and we are just going to jump right in. So we would like to know, can we hear your personal and professional stories and kind of how they came together to where you are working today? Absolutely. Absolutely. So my story starts back when I was 13 years old, when I announced to my parents who were not very pleased that I was becoming a vegetarian. And so when I became a vegetarian, I I was a terrible vegetarian. I basically just took out the meat and I was still eating granola for breakfast and pasta for lunch and the candy bars. And I just thought I was 
all morally upright by not eating meat and really had no idea of, I mean, I heard about you should eat protein. And so I was paying attention to protein, I guess, but had no idea about carbohydrates, had no idea about the role of fat, had just, and then the eighties hit and the low fat, everything hit, which meant more sugar in things for flavor enhancement. So I was just struggled with my weight from when I was an early teenager. And I was stuck in a model, the model of calories in, calories out, and thought, well, if I could still fit into my genes, I must be fine. But it was still a struggle. And there were times that I would force myself just to eat salad for a week, just to try and get back to something that felt better. So the struggle with the weight was sort of the obvious external thing that was going on, but I had no idea what was going on internally at the same time. I was always bloated. I had all sorts of gut issues. I had a wheat sensitivity that I didn't know. And then I learned about gluten-free, but gluten-free is might be good for the gut, but it's terrible if your blood sugar. It's all filled with starches, tapioca starch, and like all these other things. So I thought I was eating healthy, but still wreaking havoc on my gut and my blood sugar. So fast forward to 2016, and I'm working in public health. I work as a public communications consultant, public health communications, which is basically behavior change communications. And we study and I research and I do campaigns to help improve the public's health. I work for the Department of Health to help women breastfeed longer, create onboarding materials for the WIC program. And I also teach about that methodology, the behavior change communications in the Masters of Public Health program. So I'm immersed in what makes good health and what makes bad health. And actually in 2016, I was researching a book that I was calling Health Jacked, which was about the role of marketing the role of advertising in the obesity epidemic because it's normalized eating cereal for breakfast, which is probably the worst possible thing a child could eat or an adult could eat for breakfast. And But the ubiquity of seeing cereal on TV for so long made it seem like, of course you eat cereal for breakfast because we see people do it all the time. So I think the marketing piece and advertising piece is a culpable, should be held culpable in our chronic disease pandemic and that's what I was writing about. And yet, at the same time, I was still completely in denial of my own sugar addiction. So one of this, it was a pretty prophetic moment for me. I was in the grocery store and I had just finished my groceries and I was looking for something to snack on in the car on the way home. Something I did every day, every time I went shopping. I just Sometimes it was healthier than others. But on this particular day, I'm reaching for a dark chocolate peanut butter cup. And I hear a voice in my sa- head say, you can have that. You worked out today. That's something I must have said to myself a hundred or a thousand times. My treats were justified by my workouts, or I would make myself work out the next day harder because I indulged the day before. But on this particular day, for some reason, I heard it as a voice. And I was able to say, wait a sec, who's that talking? That doesn't have to do with my health goals. That doesn't have to do with my idea, my desire to eat less refined foods. It doesn't do with my understanding of sugar why is that? And then it really dawned on me, oh my goodness, that's the sugar talking. Oh my goodness, have I been addicted this whole time and not even realized it? I did a pivot from looking at public policy to understanding what sugar does in the body. And the first, one of the first things I learned, it took me a little while to get there, was that it actually was talking to me, that sugar talks to you so there's good bacteria and bad bacteria in the gut. And simplifying, the good bacteria feed on fiber and the bad bacteria feed on sugar. 
So, and through the vagus nerve, it sends a signal, oh, feed me, feed me. And then it says, it comes out your brain and says, oh, you can have that. You worked out today. All of this, I went in a swirl in the supermarket and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, is this really happening? Am I really an addict? And I went, I spent the next two years trying to heal my own addiction. I usually tell people it takes two weeks, two months, and two years to sort of heal a sugar addiction, at least in my experience, two weeks to get through the detox process, two months to start building new habits, and then really two years to have enough, not discipline, but really understanding of what it does to you so that when you make a choice to have a treat, you can back off and don't feel like you have to finish the bowl (laughs) or have another piece um, that I I call it a safe relationship. It took me two years to have a safe relationship with sugar. Yeah. So, and then that evolved somehow right into what you do now, as far as working with people in your break free from sugar program. Can you talk to us a little bit about that program? The five pathways of sugar dependency, that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 So as I was trying to figure it out my own self, I was a laboratory of one and trying to understand why sometimes I wanted, I just tried to understand, pay attention to what all were the pulls from me. And over time, I, I categorized these times and these places and these situations and the justifications and tried to put it in. And then I was also learning more about the biology. And so I put it into this framework called the five pathways of sugar dependency. And if you address all five of those, you're going to be much better equipped when you want to quit. Because if you just address the dopamine and the pleasure piece, you're still going to have habits and rituals and stress. And so, and that'll flare up and then you'll go and it takes time and a coordinated effort to understand all the different triggers. So the five pathways that I come to understand are chemical, hormonal, biological, emotional, and habitual. And I'll explain each of those. So the chemical pathway is the dopamine, the pleasure pathway. And for many people, it is the hardest one because sugar is such a reliable source of pleasure that in fact, we have become, I think of it as a cheap pleasure because it takes no effort to open a candy bar. It takes, it. it's always reliable and it's always there. And it really feels to me like it's hijacked our pleasure centers because it is so aggressive with the release of dopamine that we have lost our sensitivity to the simple pleasures of taking a clean, deep breath outside or a beautiful sip of cool water can be such a wonderful source of pleasure that we were so used to this jacked up, hyped up dopamine splurge that we that's part of the healing process is rewiring your brain to become more sensitive to taste bud your taste buds and your your physiological reactions to be more sensitive i'm sure you've worked with people who say you know i used to love eating this and now i can't even put it in my mouth or now i taste the real sweetness in the broccoli because it just takes a little while to retrain your brain so that's a really powerful pathway is the pleasure pathway the reliance on the quick pleasure. The hormonal pathway is the insulin pathway and the blood sugar roller coaster that you go on when you have sugar, particularly when you started in the middle, in the beginning of the day. We have sugar or car- simple carbohydrates and then the insulin chases it and we cra- we come down and then we need another boost and then another boost. And so that search for energy to maintain our energy for the day, that's another dependency. 
So advocate for a very low carb uh, diet, particularly when you're trying to quit so that you can maintain your insulin levels as evenly as possible. So you don't have to go on this energy seeking roller coaster. Then the biological pathway is the gut bacteria pathway. So as I mentioned earlier, there's good bacteria and bad bacteria in your gut, and they both need to be fed. And the bad bacteria thrives on on simple carbohydrates and sugar, as well as uh, lots of other things make for a dysbiosis in the gut. And those that mix of bad bacteria wants to be fed by bad things, basically. So uh, when the bad bacteria want to be fed, they send messages to your brain and justify the way I feel it is like this momentum, like there's nothing that's going to stop me (laughs) from finishing that bag of chips. (laughs) Like there's just this, like I know the train wreck's coming and I'm on the train. For me, that's the gut bacteria that are, I perceive that as gut bacteria just uh, wreaking havoc on on my biology. Uh, then the uh, so those are the they're all the physiological pieces, and then the other two pieces um, are the emotional and habitual. And the emotional is the stress response. Binging on carbs and sugar works; it blisses you out, it gives you dopamine, the insulin comes in, you just sort of come off of whatever stress thing you were on, and so we come to rely on that as a way of mindlessly managing our cortisol, and which. Ironically, on the back end of a sugar binge, you get more cortisol. So we end up being in a really bad cycle uh, that way. And then the habitual piece, we all have routines and rituals, uh, family traditions that are not just rituals, but also tied to love. So grandma's cookies and the f- everybody's favorite pecan pie at the holidays. And we associate those rituals with love because they were in the context of love and feel good. Um, But knowing what we know now, we need to create new rituals. We need to disentangle the love from the food enough so that if we don't have grandma's pie, she's not going to be offended. It's just that doesn't feel right for me anymore. So there's a lot of self-awareness that comes along with understanding these five areas and there are specific strategies in the program for addressing each of them as well. And so is it kind of like that two-year program you talk about then, you know, the two weeks, the two months, and then the two years where people can may be able to return to some form of use of sugar? Is that kind of how the program works? I wanted to clarify because I heard you say in the beginning that then you could find ways to consume sugar safely. But I know the clients that Molly and I work with in addiction, progressive disease. And so- yeah. It's really one bite, one binge, and that dopamine reward pathway is set in place. So I just wanted to clarify what your thoughts were on that piece. I think everybody is different and has different chemical disturbances in their brain. Some people are more... One of the things I found with several clients is a connection between um, giving up alcohol and becoming sugar addicts. So those people who are wired for alcoholism have a different brain wiring than the people who are some other people. So I think there are some people just like they can never have another drink, they can never have another sugar. And I think those people are really, there aren't that many of them, probably less than 10% of the population are wired that way. And some people can make room for it. I go through periods of not having any at all. And then I go through phases of baking with almond flour and stevia and, you know, trying to 
soften the edges a little bit, but then uh, invariably after uh, a little bit of time, I just want to clean out again, just not get down that slippery slope because I, I was a binger. Binger, <laughs> buy a bag of cookies to eat home on, on the car ride home, knowing full well I was going to eat the bag of cookies on the ride home. So I not everybody is wired that way, but know thyself, I guess, would be yeah. a key piece. Yeah, I think that's great, right? Just know your truth and and honor that. So then who would be the ideal client for your program? And can you explain, you know, I've heard you call it like a sugar minimal lifestyle. So who would be the ideal client for the sugar minimal lifestyle for your program? I use the term sugar minimal lifestyle because people always ask, do I have to give it up forever? And so I just say, no, no, the goal is a sugar minimal lifestyle that if you wanted to, you could choose to pursue it as you could. But most people realize that slippery slope for most of the people who come to me, they have issues. And so if they're, so most of the, my ideal client, most of the people who come to me uh, are midlife women who have battled with their weight the whole time. And most of them are conscious that it's a sugar thing, particularly in the first week of the program, we do a kitchen pantry clean out. You know, some of them are just surprised what's lurking in there that they didn't consciously remember, but just in case of emergency food and everything. But I have also worked with several men and as well. So it's not just women, but it's, it's mostly women. And I use the term sugar minimal lifestyle, like I said, to not scare people away because when chocolate is your best friend, to say you can't have it anymore, of course, you're going to feel deprived. Of course. So until you start raising up those other areas of pleasure until you start um, minimizing the habit of jacking your brain with so much dopamine, until you start reacclimating your your system, of course, you're going to feel deprived. And so one, a, a lot of, I talk a lot about pleasure. And I think it's really important for people to not feel like they have to buy or bake something to feel good. Yeah, it's so true. And it, that's so like this consumerism culture, right? Yeah, yeah. So what are the nine areas of health you assess for and work with clients to improve? Okay. So I am going to find my graphic for that. I'm not going to share it, but I'm just going to read from it. I call it, it's actually 10 areas of 10 key areas of well-being. And these are, everybody has a different wheel of wellness type of tool, or many people who work as health coaches have some sort of a self-assessment tool. And I look at well-being pretty holistically. It's not just diet and exercise, um, but they certainly play an important role. So the 10 areas that I like to look at are eating well, and the subcategories of that are eating lots of vegetables and low amounts of processed food. I totally advocated for a whole eating as many whole foods as possible. If it has a barcode, think twice or eliminate it. So eating more vegetables are going to feed the good bacteria in your gut and low amounts of processed food are going to keep your blood sugar steady and you're getting cleaner food. And then healthy fat should also be in there as well. Hydrating, staying uh, well hydrated is a key area of well-being and moving. Sometimes I call it exercise, but it's really moving your body. Sometimes you need to move it vigorously. Sometimes you need to lift heavy things and you need to stretch uh, frequently so you don't uh, get too tight. So moving has a lot of different category, subcategories as well. I think being outside is a key area of wellness. Uh, so much research around um, healing from surgery when you can see plants in the room or have a window outside 
There's uh, a whole field of research in Japan uh, around uh, forest bathing, uh, that spending a couple of hours in the woods without a purpose, just observing, smelling, uh, feeling, breathing, can uh, is a stress reliever. And there's also some research that when you exercise outdoors, you have the extra added belief, uh, benefit, extra oxygen, and stress relief. So there's extra well-being uh, when you're moving outside. Restful sleep, for most people, it's seven to eight hours, super important for detoxification of the body, for uh, mental clarity, all sorts of things there. I think re- having a reflective practice or a contemplative practice or a mindfulness practice is pretty important, especially this day and age when we're so distracted uh, and get so much dopamine from our devices that having a counterbalance to become more thoughtful and more choiceful around everything about what we choose to eat, but also how often we pick up our phone, how we take the time to uh, prepare a meal or be with friends or family, uh, that all of those things are enhanced with a reflective or contemplative practice that lets us set our intentions and reflect on our actions and feelings so we can learn from them. I think learning in general is uh, a key area of wellness. If the brain is not learning something new, it's not engaging. And you don't have to do anything to learn. You can just reflect to learn about yourself or observe to learn how certain things happened or happened in patterns. But learning is an, the brain is built to learn. And if we exercise that, we're less likely to be bored and because boredom leads to mindless eating. I think playing and creating are also an important part of wellness, Um, just playing or creating something, creating in the kitchen or creative, making something handy, doing something handy. But the brain loves to create and it loves to play. And we learn so much, have so much pleasure and dopamine from playing. So playing uh, and creating fall into that another category of wellness. Social connection, so important to feel like we're part of a community and have close have intimacy uh, with ourselves and also with uh, the people in our lives. And there's lots of research around uh, aging and wellness and the importance of social connection as we age in particular. Uh, And then there's intimacy and sex, which um, whether you're solo or partnered, uh, having that sort of intimate connection is I think uh, is an important part of wellness that often isn't talked about in the general health world. But I think it's pretty fundamental to being human. And when we forget about it because of we're being disciplined with our diet, and then we forget about this whole other part of ourselves, it just it gets us a little bit out of balance. So there's being radical self care is complicated. <laughs> there's a lot of pieces to feel really good, and sometimes we don't notice. When one piece is lacking, it sort of drains a little energy out of the vibrancy of the fullness, but we might not notice it because it happens gradually or it's just one piece or you don't have time. Uh, But as you bring it back online, we, we feel more buoyant, we feel more whole, we feel more well, and then that leads to just happiness and productivity. Yeah. And so much of what you described is, is what Clarissa and I do with our clients every day, either individually one-on-one or we run a group as well. And, you know, we have these 10 modules and I feel like we hit on every one of them or pretty close to every one of them. So it's like, okay, check, we're doing something right. (laughs) 
So thank you for, for sharing that piece with us. But, and I'm sure as you know, I mean, you're in the business of, of behavior change Mm -hmm. as we are as well. And, you know, a lot of people we find really struggle to make those necessary changes in the beginning when they're starting this whole process. Can you talk to us about that resistance, that brain resistance um, to change and some of the ways that we can help clients start to work around them? Yeah. So the brain, so I built a mini course that I haven't really launched yet, but it's called the uh, three ways your brain resists change or three things to know about your brain and self-sabotage. Because before you actually win at quitting sugar, you self-sabotage yourself a hundred (laughs) times by playing a mental game. So there are all sorts of mental games and there's a whole track of mindset work that I, uh, that we work on too. But before I dive into that, I just want to say uh, I've had tried several iterations of my course. I've tried it self-directed with a Facebook group. I've tried it longer. I've tried it shorter. Uh, right now, the format is a month long and with weekly phone calls. So it's a cohort model. And every because everybody in the first week wants to know what do I eat for breakfast, <laughs> so they learn from each other and we share resources and we we're going through it together. And so if someone is struggling and feel like they it's going to be too much of a struggle on their own, join a group uh, because the group gives you not only is there interpersonal learning, but there's also support and there's some place to go when you're not sure what to do, or you think you're going to go off the rails or what, does everybody have a headache? You know? So I think having, doing it in a group setting, like I did it alone. I'm sort of a loner that way, but a lot of people aren't. So I, for the self-directed people, just give me the information and I'll be fine. I, there are plenty of them, but I think there are more people who just oh my gosh, if I have to give up sugar, I don't want to do it alone. <laughs> so finding your people. And it's also really hard. I found it takes a lot of personal power to be the only one in your household that is changing the way we're eating because food is comfort. It's familiar. And what do you mean we're not having macaroni and cheese anymore? <laughs> so I think there's, if you can't bring your people with you, you have to, I hate to tell people you have to make two meals. But you do need to make sure that you maybe make a version for them and a version for you. So maybe you make macaroni and cheese with zucchini noodles for you and macaroni and cheese with the elbow noodles with for everybody else. You know, you can make little adaptations so that you can not spend all the time in the kitchen. And when you're working and you have to feed kids, it's really hard to try and get that all done. But I'm sure you work with your clients to be creative and find the easy fixes and there are workarounds. If there's a will, there's a way. So three ways, and there might even be more than this, but three ways that your brain resists change is one is that it's wired to keep you safe. So the rear brain, the amygdala is the reptilian or the primitive brain. And its primary job is to keep you safe, which means don't change because change means we don't know what's going to happen. So if you always walk, so the The common example of the reptilian brain in action is you're walking down a path and you see a tiger. You're not going to walk down that path again because you saw a tiger. Uh, You're going to want to walk down another path. And so the brain remembers what caused danger, but ice cream does not cause danger. (laughs) The ice cream is pleasure. And so because of the brain's propensity for pleasure, which we talked about it, that's another uh, default wiring of the brain is the pleasure principle. 
then, and dopamine and pleasure is, it's not just pleasure, it's, it's related to motivation and reward. So it gets you to do something. So when we tell people or suggest to people to wind down their treats, they don't have another system for self-reward. And so that that's a form of resistance. Like, why would I, why would I want to give up wine or why would I want to give up chocolate? Because they haven't, their brains haven't even gotten through thinking about where else they're going to get pleasure. They're just thinking about the short-term, easy, accessible pleasure, and I want my pleasure now. So uh, those are two. So wired to keep you safe. Don't do anything different. And part of that is eating the pint of ice cream did not kill you. So you can do it again. You're here to tell the story, so you can do it again. And then the third one is the brain is wired to conserve energy. So the brain loves a habit doesn't care if it's a good habit or a bad habit, just loves a habit. The habits we have for our actions and our eating habits or our stress response are also, those habits are wired and to rewire them takes energy and your brain tries to conserve energy. So the biggest part of changing habits is just the initial, I think about it as a, a record needle picking up out of one groove and moving into another groove. It takes a little effort to do that, but then it's persistence and consistency. And one of the things I use to help my clients change their habits is we use, we use a whole bunch of different mantras. So the mantra is of Eastern technology uh, that is used to help you remember what your goals are, or your purpose, or your spiritual connection. And I use it pretty broadly in this context, but because becoming aware of how you talk to yourself is so important in this work, because we for up until the point we start questioning what our voices is saying, we think it's truth. I thought for years, oh, I can have that. I worked out today. I thought that was truth. I thought that was, but until I questioned that, is that really true? Until I be, was able to separate the thought and replace it with another thought, it became, it was an automatic, it was a habitual thought. So we use uh, a whole bunch of different mantras. Like one, one that I use often is, I don't have to be this way. Or I can be somebody different. I can be the person who doesn't need chocolate after dinner. I could try being that person. See what that feels like. So it's not like a yes, no, you can't have it, or you're bad if you do. It's just like, well, let's, let's be curious. Let's see what happens if I don't have chocolate tonight and have a cup of licorice tea. That's a big hack, licorice tea. It's super sweet, and uh, it, it acts as a really great substitute for a sweet tooth after dinner. I found clients really love it. Yeah, I love that. I, we are often asking the individuals we work with to just try this experiment, try this tonight, see what happens, see how it goes, see what the feelings are, see what those thoughts are. Those your thoughts, write them down, right? To just kind of examine like what's really going on in there when that's happening. Oh, I love talking to you because if you tried to explain to somebody in the beginning, well, what, how do you quit sugar and curiosity, being curious would be one of the answers. Yeah. You don't get that until you're in it. And, you know, one of your early questions, what earlier questions was, how do you get people to start? And if you, I think if we, maybe we would all do better if to just get curious, you know, just, it ties into identity so much too. People, I use the example of, you know, if you're pride yourself on being a donut expert, you're in Canada, right? So that's Tim Horton. Yeah. Right? If, <laughs> so if you're a Tim Horton connoisseur, and your identity is wrapped up in one particular donut that you love and you think it's the best one, if you were told that you couldn't have that, that's an affront to your identity. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard. So, well, if I don't love donuts, who am I? Because 
among your peer group, among your family, to yourself. You've identified you've identified yourself with this. So getting people to be curious about, well, what else are you good at? Are you good at making an omelet? Are you good? What other kinds of mastery can identity can you cultivate that support this new image or identity you want to cultivate? Yeah, I love that. And it's so important. And when you were talking about that, those nine areas of self-care, right? Self-care is not pedicure and manicure. That <laughs> is, care is what she was talking about. Yeah. And when I say like, what do you do for joy in your life? People have no idea because they, they've been in the food. It's that now that that's the experiment. What do you like to do for fun? How do you start that journey? That's a good one. People really don't have any idea. Yeah. I'm wondering what your experience has been during COVID. Have you found people more willing to kind of examine their relationship with food or able to make these changes? Both. I would say, you know, a lot of people gained 15 pounds uh, in lockdown and other people got in great shape (laughs) because they already took advantage of the habits of starting new habits. So I think when you put on 15 pounds in a relatively short time, your self-esteem, it hurts your self-esteem because you look at yourself and say, how did that happen? I was out of control. I was stressed, which makes them feel they didn't have coping skills. And so I think all the more need in COVID to help people and all the other underlying health conditions are caused by sugar and inflammation. So we need to get on this really badly (laughs) on a national, international level. But I think, and then all the loss that's on top of it, a lot of familial loss, personal loss and sickness. You don't want to make people feel bad about, you don't want to blame the victim. So I always tell people, it's just not your fault. (laughs) Wherever you are, it's not your fault. We're marketed to, it's accessible, it's added, sugar's added to everything. Like if you relied on food to get through COVID, God bless you. Now let's learn, take that opportunity and say, oh, look what happened. I was stressed out and I didn't manage my stress. I need to work on my stress management. You can't work on your sugar without your stress man- handling your stress management. So it's just like, if you don't have good sleep, if you don't have good hydration, if you don't have good exercise, like it's, it's an uphill battle unless you really support yourself with all of those other areas. Yeah. I heard you on another, in another interview say there's nothing convenient about being healthy. And I mean, I think you kind of just spoke to like that consumerism, that marketing that we're surrounded with. And we know that's what got us here in a lot of ways. Not, that's not the whole picture, but that's definitely part of it. So, you know, what, how do we get out of it? What actions can we take that will support public health policy change? What can we do? So dollar power, buy the good whole fresh foods. The cereal industry responded to about 20 years ago, started doing all whole grains. Oh, this is whole grains because it responded to public pressure, pressure from the nutrition community saying we can't have all this white flour. So they gave us refined flour, (laughs) refined whole grains, right? I don't know if you've ever seen a video of uh, how they make extruded cereal, but it basically turns into a mush and then they pop it through these shapes and then they harden with special ingredient. I don't know. It's just crazy. Uh, Super processed food. (laughs) So there's the, just buy the better stuff and eventually the market will respond to things with less junk in them. But that's a, that's a slow, that's a big ship to turn, but we can also be vocal. If you have kids and they're in a school system 
find out what they're eating for lunch. So in the U.S., we a lot of schools are. Um, I guess I'm going to get into the whole bigger policy thing, and I'm I'm sure it's similar in Canada, um, but I'm now I'm speaking to what the system in the U.S., which is food assistance in the U.S. is created through our farm bill, the USDA Farm Bill, and it funds the three major uh, food assistance program: the SNAP, which used to be Food SNAP Stamps Food Assistance Program. It funds WIC, which is the Women, Infants, and Children Program, and it also funds school uh, school meals. So the government is involved in taking food and getting it into these systems. But the problem is that there are, they approve foods. Some foods you can get on SNAP and some foods you can't. You can get 64 ounce liters of soda. Like that should not be allowed. You should not be allowed to use your federally federally funded dollars to help your disease. (laughs) Just because we're going to end up paying it on the back end anyway, right? But there's so much pain and suffering along the way, we should just not. So I think on a policy level, uh, we need to look at what the rules are, what we're funding now, what's allowed and what's not allowed without making it too too many hoops for the people that need it the most. One of the arguments that I've heard about not removing soda is that it's punitive to the people who have limited dollars. And I would I say, okay, well, they should be spent with they have limited dollars, they should not be spending it. But there's all sorts of issues with pro- eating processed food and fast food. When you can feed a family for $6, it's, we have a problem. <laughs> but there's certainly policy things that can help that. And on an individual level, we need to just talk about it more. If we give up sugar, don't be, uh, as an individual, don't be shy about talking about it with your friends. Or as we learn more, it, because it's not part of the zeitgeist. Now, when I so I'm still like the worst person to invite to a party because if anybody says, what have you been doing lately? <laughs> I help people get off sugar. Um, they're like, ooh, do I have to do that? <laughs> like People just don't want to hear it. So it's, but we need to normalize it. And, and thankfully, uh, there's been much more press uh, about it uh, in the online press and the New York Times. There are people, journalists regularly writing about it now because there was so much suppression of the sugar research back in the 70s and 80s that now some of that, those cover-ups, the scientific cover-ups are, are, have been, been released. So the journalists, um, and then if you ever have a conversation with your legislators, they do want to hear what issues are important to their constituents. And so it's really a powerful, uh, at least in the U.S., it's a powerful way to get the issue on the, regis- on the, on the register uh, of the public policymakers. And more people doing this, more people being interviewed in magazines, more people. Yeah, I'd love to see more nonprofits pop up around food education and go into schools and do real nutrition education. And that's the other thing, too, is that in schools, not only are they fed chocolate milk at lunch every day, but they, they're not taught about where food comes from. Or the biology, your body needs vegetables. Like we don't even mention that in school. And if you're not getting it at home, you're just not getting the information because you don't see vegetables on TV. So there's just a lack of information flow to young people that would be helped by more deliberate advocacy, education, outreach by people like us who are really concerned. Do you think that that block of information is directed by big food and that they perhaps are, you know, somewhat infiltrating 
these governments in some ways and funding them. And I'm just curious, like, what public health crisis will be enough that public policy will have to change is what I'm wondering, really. I'm hopeful, actually, that COVID, in the beginning, there was a lot of talk around maybe we understand the underlying conditions thing now, so maybe public policy will change. But it's really hard. Big sugar is a big industry, a big lobby, and it's tied to farming. And farming is every nation's lifeblood. And so one of the big policy things that set us on this trajectory in the post-World World War II era was corn subsidies, because it made high fructose corn syrup such a cheap ingredient. The sugar industry just made a fortune. And they give money to politicians and keep funding corn because we keep making money. And so there's lots of insidiousness, I would say, in the political, commercial, corporate, political, corporate world that might be, it'll take investigative journalists to unravel and report on and get people interested there's some people, there's a, a woman called the Food Babe, I think her name is, who's a real advocate and has like gone, she, her thing is mostly additives, cancerous additives, but she has such a following that she's gotten people, these big manufacturers should change their ingredients. And so we need, we need viral advocacy around this to help change the companies, but also change our behavior. Because if they, you know, there's all sorts of franken sugar research happening now that are like well well beyond aspartame and the artificial sweeteners. It's like whole new level of genetic manipulation that uh, scares me to death. But unless we as a public have less demand for these foods, they're going to keep making them and they could tweak the ingredients and try and make it healthier in quotes, but it's still processed and refined and that's still going to be bad for our health. I think while the policy piece needs to happen, we need to really rely more on education. And that involves um, teaching people how to cook because they're so used to eating out of boxes and cans and microwavable foods, which aren't all bad. A lot of you can get frozen vegetables, microwave them pretty quickly, toss them with some cauliflower rice and some grilled chicken or rotisserie chicken and you have a cheap meal. So I think giving people ideas on how uh, how to feed your family well uh, inexpensively uh, is needs to be promoted probably more than trying after going after the Goliath because they're just going to tweak the formulas and put it in a package because they want you to buy stuff and health is not in a box. Yeah, it really sounds like you're saying this needs to be a grassroots kind of movement. Start at home, start in your own kitchen, start with your own family, maybe your own extended family, maybe your book club, whoever that might be mm. and grow it that way because I guess I'm not really hearing you say that food policy or the food supply is going to change anytime soon. Well, there's been lots of discussion. You know, there's a lot of food policy, food systems conversation around the obesity epidemic and um, malnutrition on a global scale. And there's Food, there's an organization called Food Tank. They're based out of New York and they do summits and, and policy work great organization that is looking at the food system holistically. So, and there are lots of little pieces, chefs um, who do farm to table restaurants. uh, They're a piece of the puzzle. The school food nutrition is a piece of the puzzle. 
Learning how to cook with more vegetables is a piece of the puzzle. You're right. It's really a grassroots thing because if you can model healthy change, so if you can model healthy change in your sphere, what dozen people you come in contact with regularly in your life, they're going to ask, oh, you lost weight. Oh, you're, you have more energy. Oh, you, you seem different. They're going to want to know what you did. And that's going to spur uh, conversation. And having access to resources, I think, you know, and I do plenty of sharing of videos, you know, a viral video. Oh, you, I share with friends. Oh, you should read this or you should see this video because it really explains what's going on. But then there's still that disconnect between what you know you should do and what you actually do. <laughs> and so it, since it is so hard to do alone, I, I've, for me, the more I read, the more I learned, the easier it was because I can't go back on what I don't know. I can't go back to being ignorant anymore. So the education piece and educating, if you have young people in your life, either your, uh, your own kids or nieces and nephews or cousins' kids, you ne- need to have the conversation. However, oh, it's so hard um, when you see a mom give a, a candy to a kid just to keep them quiet or give it as a reward. I usually, I would love to do a whole bunch of workshops for moms to just try and understand how to develop different creative reward systems for their kids. And really the easiest thing, kids want nothing more than to spend time with you. So instead of finish your homework and you'll get a cookie, finish your homework and we'll play a game of checkers, you know, or whatever it is that's going to help you bond with your kid more than just get them to quiet down and making rules in the house. Cause it's okay to have, when they go to Johnny's house next door, they eat other stuff. That's fine. But in your house, you're explaining the way it is and they can make their choices, but you need to model what is right and healthy and teach them because they're not going to get it anywhere else. Lots of tips for moms. I, when I have time, I'd love to do something with PTA, parent teachers of school, parents associations. Say just, just, this is the, here are some strategies for not getting in food fights with your kids. And because there's also that phase with kids when from like two to five, when all they want is pasta and butter and they're just growing at such a fast rate. They just burn through those carbs. That's fine. But, you know, you can't get a second helping until you have those three little beans. (laughs) That's what we're serving tonight. We're having beans. You know, just figuring out non-ways to get combative. Because one thing I hear a lot is I need to choose my battles with the kids. And you don't want to fight over the food because they're just going to dig in and say no and not eat. And then they're going to grab something worse than they wanted to eat at, at dinner. So, there's uh, parents need a lot of support and they need a lot of information and yeah, information support for parents would go a really long way for saving the lives of the next generation. So where can our listeners find you and your groups? And if there is a parent listening, that's like, oh, maybe I need her support. The central place is breakingfreefromsugar.com. That And from there, you can go over to my learning platform where I offer a couple of different programs. Right now, Uh, The next time I'm running my program isn't until January, but I have an ongoing support group, which will be continuing. So, you know, my program is now set up for at a month, uh, but that really just helps you get through the detox period. And that's when, then the work begins. (laughs) After you can look at a cookie and not feel like you have to eat it, then you start being able to see, oh, I have the impulse to move to that. What can I do instead? And start, then the rewiring starts. So 
I have the program is organized and then there's a, a membership program afterwards to support people while they're working through the, the mindset work and the longer term behavior change. But you can start at Breaking Free from Sugar. And if anyone, you can, my email's on that website. You can shoot me an email and let me know what you're interested in. And if you want, if you have five or 10 parents that want to learn more about how strategies for their kids, give me a holler and we'll make something happen. Yeah. I think that when you get that going, we're going to have to have you back because I have small children myself, but then many of my clients, probably because I attract that same <laughs> same clientele. This is a lot of what we spend time on is how do I do this with my children? And oh, but my children are eating these things and bringing them into my house. You know, all of those, you know, little nuanced things that we need to really work with people on. So that would be great. So hopefully we can have you back. But before you go, we have a signature question. Yes. So if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about sugar addiction, what would it be? It is sneaky. It will lie to you. It will convince you otherwise. It is really sneaky. It shows up in your thoughts. And I think because of that, I was in denial for such a long time. So I would say I sometimes get the image of like a a little devil with the horns, like it's going to get you, it's going to get you, and it's going to try and not let you change because that's also tied to your brain wiring that doesn't want to change because this worked and you got pleasure and it was reliable. So I would say don't underestimate it. Don't underestimate it and don't believe everything you think. Love that. That's perfect. It's so true. If it, it sounds like you, but it's not you. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for so coming welcome. on the show today. It's been such a delight to have you. Yes, My pleasure. Thank you. thank you so much for your good work. Do do a program for parents. I bet they would they would eat it up. 2023. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Here we come. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group. I'm sweet enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.